folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore author and researcher, and creator of the Folklore Podcast. This episode is called Glitter and Grave Dust, and is the second of our seasonal episodes for October. For this show, I'm joined by special guest Judith Hewitt. Judith is co-manager of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle, Cornwall, probably the most famous museum of these themes in the world, and additionally boasting a library of over 7,000 occult and esoteric books, which I used myself when researching my book, Black Dog Folklore. The museum has a fantastic website, which has many of its artefacts online for examination. I would urge you to visit and have a look. I travelled to the museum and interviewed Judith on the subject of Halloween and its folklore, both now and in the past, I started firstly, however, by asking her how she came to find herself as manager of such a museum. I studied history at the University of Nottingham, uh, and then I studied a master's in local and regional history also at the University of Nottingham. Then after that I was a history teacher for seven years, and I worked my way up to be head of department for four years as head of history in a large secondary school teaching students from 11 to 18 Um, and during that time the popularity of history went up I was very pleased to hear and uh, the department developed and grew and I felt like I'd taken it as far as it could go and my husband Peter at the same time had studied for uh, a BA in art history, an MA in museum studies and then a PhD in material culture. As he came towards the end of his PhD he wanted to get a job somewhere that used his skills in museum studies and also he'd done a um, master's thesis looking at the use of folklore in museums so he was very interested in doing something with an unusual collection where you could approach it in a, an unusual museological way and incorporate ideas and beliefs rather than just sort of archaeological approaches towards objects. So when he saw the job for the Museum of Witchcraft as it was then uh, he decided to apply for it, but when we looked at the person specification, we realised that a lot of the requirements involved managerial things, which I have more experience of, having managed a budget and a large team of teachers. 
Uh, so we decided to rather cheekily put in a joint application and see how it went. Um, and it went rather well and we met Simon Costin, the director of the museum, and we got on very well with him. Uh, we came down to the museum and met with Graham King and got on well with him also. Um, we fell in love with Boss Castle and the museum's collection. And we also saw a lot of potential, a lot of the things that we could add to the museum to, to bring it forward and continue enriching it. So we moved down here in April 2014, I think, um, and we've been here for three years now. So uh, we're enjoying it very much. So that's how I came to be here. So this year, 2016, the museum has um, uh, a special exhibition on the ground floor on Halloween glitter and great dust. So can you tell me a little bit about the thinking behind that exhibition and how that came to be created? The exhibition uh, came to be created as a result of discussion between uh, myself, Peter and Simon Costin, the director of the museum. As well, and what we were really looking at was uh, reflecting the visitors that come to the museum. Um, if you're here every day and you see people and you welcome people, um, you see that the the visitors fall into two very general categories. I don't want to stereotype people, but you know, based on what you see, um, you could generally say that there's people who come to the museum as magical practitioners, as adepts, with people of an interest in folklore and the ritual traditions of Britain. And they come to the museum with a very specific set of ideas and they're looking for certain things in the museum. We also get the sort of general public who really have no comprehension of anything to do with witchcraft and magic beyond what they've seen on television and beyond sort of a general concept of the witch and magic, perhaps from films and things like that. And we thought about Halloween as being uh, a sort of linchpin between those two sets of visitors, where to the magical practitioner or the person with a witchcraft background, it's Samhain and it's one of the most important days in their year and in their ritual calendar, and it's hugely significant to them. Um, to the average visitor, it's uh, a time of fun, silliness, excitement, um, and very, very popular. And we thought that here was a chance to explore those two aspects, the glitter and the grave dust, the, the, the lighter side of Halloween and the more sombre, serious parts of it. And to think about both our visitors and how they experience, both sets of visitors and how they experience the museum and what their expectations of it are, but also how both sides of that coin are informing each other that Samhain is having an influence on more mainstream Halloween and that Halloween has definitely had an influence on Samhain. So we wanted to explore that and look at it. And from a more um, practical point of view, we knew that we had a fantastic collection of divination postcards which had been in store for many years. Um, they're one of the largest collections that we've got in the museum from the 1800s and 1900s. We've got about 50 postcards that Graham King purchased a number of years ago. They were on display for a while, but they have been in store since Graham King's time. Uh, and we all felt that was a bit of a waste, a bit sad, a bit of a shame. Graham himself was always talking about getting them out. And we thought it would be a good chance to get them out, but put them in context of Halloween, witchcraft, magic, the popular festival, the childish festival, the mainstream festival, and also looking back into the customs and how that originated. Okay, so let's focus on Halloween itself then, October the 31st, that's traditionally All Hallows Eve or Halloween. Um, what makes that date, that time, such a special time for people? 
Halloween occurs at the feels like the end of the year or depending on your perspective the beginning of the new year it's the time when leaves are falling from the trees it's a time when things start to get a little colder a little more chill and things people start to their thoughts start to turn towards the darker side of life as the darker time of the year comes about so it seems like certainly there's some connection between the time of the year and the seasonality and the, the the feelings and thoughts that people have had for centuries around this time of year so and that seems to have been where the modern festival of halloween uh, came about and that made it a special time there's also the 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 concept which is uh, you know the, the idea that comes across in many many of the the accounts of halloween that it is a time when the veil between the worlds is very thin, a time when anything could happen, where the magic that normally you couldn't practice, that if you didn't have the way, if you weren't one of those people who practiced magic regularly, Halloween was a night where magic could happen, where strange creatures could be seen, where fairies roam the earth. Um, so it's that sort of liminal time in the year, a time of transition, and a time for thinking about the year that's passed, the year to come. And how did that then come on and develop from being a special night for individual people into more of a, a festival? Uh, that's rather controversial how the modern Halloween came about. There's a huge amount of debate on it um, and people take it very seriously. Uh, there is the argument that uh, modern Halloween is imposed onto the ancient holiday of Samhain, which was three days of feasting um, uh, that started on October the 31st. Um, and there are accounts of Samhain practices, particularly in Ireland, um, where people were said that all the fires across the kingdom would be extinguished on that night and then relit the next day from a druidic hearth and that the fire would be spread throughout all of Ireland. So it was the Celtic New Year. Uh, there's definite evidence of Samhain occurring in, in Ireland in the Middle Ages. How widespread that was across the whole of Europe is where it gets more contentious. Whether or not it was ever celebrated in, in Cornwall is very contentious um, and really the, the the festival of Halloween as it comes to be known doesn't really develop until the Middle Ages and it develops around and it does move from time from different dates um, originally um, All Hallows was sort of celebrated around May time I believe and then it moved to November the 1st um, and it's really a church festival relating to purgatory and changing beliefs of purgatory um, and intercession and intervention with those in the afterlife. Then during the Reformation, it becomes uh, a taboo celebration. It's too much to do with purgatory. It's too much a relic of the old superstitions and Catholicism. And uh, therefore, it's uh, pushed to the margin, so to speak, and it only endures in areas where the hold of the state and the church isn't too strong. So it, it's it's essentially a Roman Catholic holiday, Halloween, um, which has been revived largely in the 20th century as a result of Americanization. So if it was a, a difficult celebration, perhaps, for, you know, in regards to the church and things like that, why do you think it became so popular? Uh, it became popular in America in the sort of 1700s and 1800s, largely because it wasn't perceived as being a religious festival. 
Um, people think now of Halloween, there's the divided view that it is Samhain, which is a pagan religious festival. A lot of evangelical Christians view Halloween as a satanic festival. Um, but really the, the, the popularity of it in America was because it wasn't religious. You had other festivals that were obviously Catholic or obviously Protestant. And Halloween seemed to exist in that space, again, another liminal space where it doesn't really fit into any one ethnicity or any one religion in America. Um, and so it takes on aspects of all those different cultures that are in America. And in the exhibition, we have the melting cauldron of America playing on that idea of the melting pot where you throw all the cultures in together and it comes out with some a hybrid, which retains aspects of all of those different cultures, but is a unique thing in itself. And that's really the modern Halloween. It takes ideas from um, Ireland and from um, other countries like Scotland particularly and their customs, but it also adds in sort of like German ideas to do with Walpurgis Night is sort of brought into the Halloween in America and also sort of Puritan ideas to do with witchcraft and the devil get into Halloween um, in America too and this sort of modern idea of horror films and terror being a time of Halloween. That's not really in the Celtic Irish sources but it is very much a preoccupation of Puritan settlers in America. So it, it becomes a popular holiday in America and people think it's just an American invention, it's not a European thing, but what it actually is, is a European idea, or European sets of ideas, which travel across to America, meld together, become one holiday known as Halloween, and then travels back to Europe and is sold sort of as an American idea. And really the roots of it are in uh, European cultures. And it's popular because it's unregulated and unregulatable. It's one of the only holidays in America that isn't state-sponsored or that does, no one has a vested interest in it happening, yet it seems to happen. So it has the element of freedom about it and it has the element of spontaneity about it. It's hugely creative and it's always generating new manifestations of itself. And I think that's the reason for its popularity. Okay, so, so across America then, um you have this diverse set of ideas about how to celebrate Halloween and they then get brought together. So if we move to Britain, for example, is it then celebrated in the same way across Britain as a country or again is it celebrated there? Um, across Britain, um, October the 31st celebrated in enormously different ways and we have a, a map with a lot of examples in the exhibition, but that's actually just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the examples that we researched to create the exhibition. Um, there's the interesting thing about the way that Halloween or October the 31st is celebrated across the British Isles is that it brings in the aspects of paganism pagan leftovers, pagan endurances for survivals. It also brings in some of the celebrations are obviously Roman Catholic um, in origin and some are much more difficult to pinpoint what religious system or belief system they fit into. So an example of what we could describe as a pagan survival um, is I believe from the Isle of Lewis in the very far north of Scotland where the people of this one parish would all make a special beer on 4 October the 31st. They would then bring that to the church 
So you might then think this is a religious ceremony or something to do with Christianity, but it very seems very unlikely that it is. They meet in the churchyard, perhaps as a place of power, uh, and they mix together, everyone adds like a, an egg cup full of their ale to the collective ale pot, which they then wade out into the sea and pour as a libation into the sea to Shoni, whatever that may be. And uh, so there are some theories that that's the, the, the genus loci, the spirit of the place, the spirit of the sea. There are other ideas that it actually might be a corruption of Johnny or John, that actually it's something to do with an evangelical saint that visited that area. The, the origins of that are lost in time, but it would seem like that's a, a pagan survival of a custom that really has, we would see as having nothing to do with what we would see as the modern Halloween. Then there's other things that people still practice, and um, particularly in the sort of north of England and parts of Scotland, the custom on Halloween is to have bonfires. Um, and there's a lot to do with um, warding off witches. We having bonfires to ward those off. There's also just general protection devices, rolling near bonfires and inhaling the smoke seems to be a purification ritual in some places. Um, and one of those takes place in a field that's in Derbyshire, I think it was, called Purgatory Field. So that's very clearly seems to be linked to Roman Catholic ideas of purgatory, but also purification ideas that might, we might suggest have links to paganism or a more ancient religion. Um, so the diverse celebration of October the 31st across Britain is something that we really wanted to explore in the exhibition. Okay, so we're sitting in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic. Mm -hmm. So let's take the second one first. Tell me about the types of magic that people traditionally perform at Halloween? Um, well, Halloween was seen as a time when magic would be particularly efficacious and it would be particularly likely to work. Um, and it was a time where people who normally probably wouldn't practice magic would practice magic, it, perhaps because the veil between the worlds was thin, it was a night when things could happen. Um, perhaps it's because it was seen as the New Year, the Celtic New Year. Um, but there are all sorts of magic that people would perform. We have a brilliant um, video created for the museum by Jane Cox and Gemma Gary of Troy Books, uh, which shows various different types of divination, attempting to see into the future, to see the unknown, to see what might hold the, the next year might hold in store for you. Um, one of the examples was one of the most common ones was just to eat salty food and then go to bed and to dream of the future, to dream of what will come. Um, another example would be to drop an egg white into water and see how it sets. Um, and the number of droplets might represent the number of children that you would have. Um, another common one that we've got a beautiful um, uh, postcard from the 1900s showing is um, cutting up an apple. There's lots of things to do with apples and Halloween. Apple bobbing in itself is arguably a type of divination. The earliest recorded examples of people doing that, they wrote um, letters on each of the apples and then would bob and see which one they would pick up and that would be an answer to their question, who you might marry, um, what the surname of your future husband might be or things like that. But to do with apples, there's the traditional method of cutting an apple into nine slices, sitting in a mirror, eating those apples and slices of apple concentrating and when you came to eat the last slice your future husband or wife, it tended to be women who did this, would appear and ask for the last slice 
Another example would be to go out and soak your arm of your shirt in the stream, to come home, take it off, hang it in front of the fire for people uh, and then go to sleep. And then in the night, you'd have a vision of your future partner who would turn the wet shirt round so that the back of it would dry as well for you. Uh, another example would be a lot of them seem to involve seeing death or getting predictions of death. Um, so there's one example where if you stayed the night of October the 31st in a porchyard of the church, you would see the devil at midnight walk through the churchyard with a procession of fetches of people who would die in that, the, the year to come. There is an, also another account of the, that the devil would preach his sermon in the church at midnight on October the 31st and that he would read out the names of all those who would die in the year to come. Um, also people would perform magic that would be attempting to contact the spirit world and attempting to contact the, the fae or the fairy world. Um, and one of the example of those is to sit on a three-legged stool at a crossroads on October the 31st and then you would hear the names whispered of those who would die in the year to come. So all sorts of magic from most commonly practiced magic seem to be related to love and figuring out who you would marry. The least common or the more extreme types involve prophecies of those who are going to die in the coming year. Okay, so that's the second part. So the first part then of the museum's title is obviously the witchcraft element. So where do we see connections between Halloween as a time of the year or as a festival uh, and witches and witchcraft? Mm -hmm. This is really important to us when we were thinking about the exhibition was that um, we had to have this emphasis on witchcraft because it's such an important part of the museum's existence. Um, we are a museum of witchcraft and magic. Um, so we have a large section looking at witchcraft and we also have a large section that's looking at sound which of course is very relevant to modern witchcraft practitioners. Um, so in that sense witchcraft is important in Halloween because it is Samhain, part of the ritual year. But in terms of the historical connections between uh, persecution and witchcraft is very much there. In, in Margaret Murray's works, um, she uh, suggests that uh, witches practiced on four different nights, uh, and Hallow Mass is one of those nights when witches were said to gather. In several of the witch trial records, there are um, accounts of, uh, and some confessions of witches saying that they met with the devil on Halloween, that they attended a Sabbath on Halloween, sometimes in the guise of a hare or another creature. Um, and there's this perception from quite early on that Halloween or Hallow Mass is associated with witchcraft. That might be because of the a connection in the mind of the time of people with those who they accused of witchcraft, with those who they saw as um, recusant Catholics, people who are clinging to the old ways. It might be a confusion or it might be actually that there were people practicing witchcraft and that Halloween was an important night to them. It certainly occurs in the witch trial records reasonably regularly. Uh, the earliest one I think is uh, North Barrack in 1590. Um, where, which is the Agnes Sampson case, which also involves a black cat and Halloween and a witch. So it would seem to bring all together all those tropes that we later see in supermarkets and on sweets and things like that. 
Another aspect of witchcraft and Halloween is protection from witches on Halloween. Several bonfires and things that took place seem to be relating to protecting the area from the evil of witches. Um, so it does seem to be a night that's connected with those things. There's a famous case of Queen Victoria celebrating Halloween in Balmoral in 1874. Um, they had a procession in front of Balmoral Castle which the Queen and her retinue took part in. The servants all dressed as fairies and they had a um, uh, a figure, a sort of guy that they, they dressed up as an old crone, a witch. Um, so they, they burnt a witch effigy called Shandy Dan. Uh, so they processed down to the bonfire and then burnt her on there. So a lot of the things that maybe people traditionally did on Halloween got passed over in England, particularly onto um, November the 5th and Gunpowder Guy Fawkes Night seems to have stolen a lot of the more traditional activities uh, of Halloween and that was quite a that was a state-sponsored anti-Catholic response to uh, this sort of midwinter sort of festival. Um, there's also a legend on the Isle of Man of Ginny the Witch who comes out on Halloween and flies across houses. Um, She's known as Ginny the Witch. It might actually be Ginny Greenslaves, which is, I think, is like a, a local sort of forest spirit, a spirit of the marshes. Um, but there's that connection as well. And then the last connection is at Pendle, or the last eminent connection, notable connection. At Pendle, there's a custom called Leeting the Witches on Halloween which is uh, taking a candle out at night and doing a circle around Malkin Tower, which is associated with the Pendle Witches, a little inaccurately, but it is associated with them in, in folklore. Walking around the, out at night with a candle, and if the candle doesn't burn out, then you're protected from witchcraft for the year. If it does burn out, then beware. Um, and Malkin Tower is supposed to be the this, this site where the witches would try and blow it out the most commonly. It's obviously a site of strong winds and unusual occurrences. Now you said earlier on, at the beginning of the interview, um, that October the 31st, amongst other things, was traditionally a night for fairies to roam the earth as well. Tell us a little more about that. This seems to go back quite a long way. Um, of course, Fae, meaning otherworldly, um, doesn't necessarily mean glittery uh, fairies that you might expect. Um, so the Fae, essentially anything otherworldly, was said to be roaming on the night of October the 31st. In Cornwall it was said that you shouldn't eat brambles or wild fruits growing because after October the 31st, as it would have been passed over by the Fae, so they would be good before that, stuff your face. After that, not so good, best left as they've been passed over. Um, there's accounts in the in in Ireland from the Middle Ages um, of people saying that the burial mounds all open on Halloween, on October the 31st or Samhain as they celebrate now. The, the, and this connection between the other world and the world of the ghost and spirit seems to have become quite sort of as time's gone by it's become fairies but actually maybe it was more that the ghosts roam the earth, that spirits roam the earth, that anything fae and otherworldly roams the earth. Um, so there are accounts of people being fairy-led or pisky-led on Halloween. There's a account in Bottle, I think, about 
um, someone being um, led away on near Penzance around that time of year. Um, and there's also um, some um, early poetry that relates to people losing time on Halloween, going to the land of, of the fair folk, um, and then on Halloween and then coming back years later, not having realised that they the time difference, obviously, and that they'd aged or not, and everyone else had aged. So. This belief in the fairies roaming the earth on October the 31st seems to again have led to some protection rituals that people took. So for example in Ireland and um, before children went out trick-or-treating in the 20th century it was quite common for parents to rub oat and salt and salt in their hair to protect them um, from being uh, grabbed on that night. And also the uh, one of the most traditional Halloween costumes which I found very interesting was uh, just to turn your clothes inside out was a traditional Halloween costume, which of course is also a traditional protection from fairies. Okay, so um, <coughs> Jack O' Lantern then is a is a traditional Halloween character, mm -hmm. very much associated with the custom now of carving pumpkins, which mm -hmm. you see all over people's doorsteps on, on Halloween night. How did that come about, and and why do they associate these carvings with that character? Mm -hmm. Well, Jack o' Lantern, uh, as legend goes, was is sometimes a name given to a, a will o' the wisp and the lights that are seen on on marshes and things like that, which were believed to to lead people astray. Uh, Jack o' Lantern is known as a perennial trickster, such a trickster that he, when he died. Um, neither God nor the devil wanted him. They didn't want him in heaven and they didn't want him in hell. And uh, legend has it that the devil even threw a, threw a hot coal at Jack to get him away from hell um, and that he caught this in a turnip, uh, which became the first turnip lantern. Uh, and that then Jack was the doomed to roam the earth, neither in heaven or hell. Um, and again, legend has it that this is, he was the first person in purgatory, the first soul in between two places, neither wanted by God or the devil. Um, so from that legend, uh, there is a connection with the, the, the legend of Jack-o-Lantern and the pumpkins which people carve all the time um, on Halloween as decoration because they are known as jack-o'-lanterns um, and so they there seems to be some connection between purgatory and the skull-like figure and these um, pumpkins that are carved now. In England it's more traditional to carve turnips, so obviously it wasn't until people went to America and pumpkins were sort of discovered there that they carved those, they're much easier to carve. Having done one, had carved up a, a turnip and a pumpkin, you can definitely say a, a pumpkin is much easier to carve with much more satisfying results. Um, interestingly in America, uh, carved pumpkins, and we have a very interesting uh, um, 19th century um, illustrated news picture showing the pumpkin effigy, it's actually the first time of the first picture of a pumpkin carved with a face um, with a light inside it in, in America um, and that was had nothing to do with Halloween it was actually um, being used around a time of Thanksgiving and it was used to scare African Americans in much the same way as white sheets and the Ku Klux Klan were used to scare so believed to be simple African Americans. Um, so how the two came together, the jack-o'-lantern legend and giving the name to the carved vegetable on Halloween 
uh, is it lost in the mists of time. But obviously there is some connection between a, a skull, which is a symbol of death, uh, the light, the fire of hell, um, the need to light up when people go out guising and trick-or-treating, that there's a need for some kind of light to be used, um, and also this idea of purgatory. So it does seem to have some resonance. We can't not talk about trick-or-treating. You've just mm -hmm. mentioned it once or twice. It's obviously one of the most well-known and variously most loved and most hated of Halloween traditions. In the United Kingdom, the general view of trick-or-treating, specifically from those that dislike it, is, oh, it's a modern American invention that got imported into Britain and now we have to put up with it. Mm -hmm. Is it modern? Did it come from there? Is that true? Well, the phrase trick-or-treat comes from America, so in that sense it's true. It actually replaced the earlier phrase which people used at the end of the 1800s, which was even more cynical, which was shell out, which is what children used to yell when they went around houses. Trick or treat was devised as a, an adult trick on children. Um, there was a spate in the sort of 1930s when children were really getting very wild in America on Halloween and causing a lot of trouble. Another name for Halloween in, in parts of Britain um, and also in America is Mischief Night. So it's a time when people do mischief and one of the most common things, and in some parts of Britain, it's called Gate Night. Um, and all you do is just take people's gates off their hinges and that's hilariously fun to naughty boys. Um, and there's all sorts of other mischief that people would do and it got quite out of hand in the 1930s. Um, and there were lots of instances of problems and eventually one person came up with a suggestion which was then published quite widely in the 1950s, which was if you seem to be taking part in the mischief, the children will come and enjoy the mischief with you rather than feel like you're a nasty stick in the mud who needs to have their house egged or something like that. So this idea of you, you you provide them with a treat and you avoid a trick is kind of the idea of trick or treat. Um, so it is an American, in its specific way it's used now, it is an American incursion. The idea of going from house to house and take, getting given food by people is not. Um, that goes back to, again, another associated idea with medieval Christianity and the custom of souling and the soul cake. So the idea is you bake in your house a soul cake made of currants and spices uh, or a biscuit with a cross on the top. Uh, you bake those in remembrance of the people in your family who have died and are in purgatory. And then when people come to the door and ask a soul cake, a soul cake, um, or sing a song, um, which I'm not going to do, uh, they, you then give the, the poor who come to the door a soul cake and in exchange, so they get given the treat, they perform the trick for you, which is to try and relieve the suffering of those you love in purgatory by praying for them. Um, so it is a, the transactional idea of people coming from house to house and getting given food is older than the modern trick-or-treat. However, the word trick-or-treat and the phraseology and the exact practice of it is very much uh, a modern thing. There was an attempt in the early 1900s to make Halloween the official candy holiday of America, an idea put forward by chocolate and sweet manufacturers. That didn't happen, but there is a cynical capitalist element to trick-or-treat, which is undeniable.
can we see the I guess the the soul cake thing as well, kind of then relating to Easter as a festival mm. too and hot cross buns. Mm. There are lots of things as well, like um the the idea of dressing up in costumes is definitely a winter thing to do. So trick or treating is not just about getting the, the sweets and things, it's about wearing the costume um and going out dressed as something, you know, ghoulish and strange. And that brings in that connection with the otherworldly elements as well. The idea that fairies or spirits roam the earth, or now you have lots of little children dressed as them. Um, enjoying the ghoulish dark side of life and enjoying a little thrill and going out at night. And one of the theories for the popularity of trick or treat is that actually kids love it because it's the time of year when they're encouraged to do all the things they shouldn't normally do. And Halloween is an important time of transgression where you can be different. And kids are usually encouraged not to eat sweets. On Halloween, they are encouraged to eat them. They're usually encouraged to be quiet. In Halloween, they're encouraged to make noise and they used to make noise-making instruments, noise-makers. Um, so there's that element that people really like, the um, the costumes and the noise, and that goes back quite a long way, that part of trick-or-treat as well. Okay, we've, we've covered a lot of traditional aspects then of Halloween there, mm -hmm. going right back, in fact, to medieval times, as you say, but also the way that Halloween has been traditionally celebrated, both as a, a festival for for people who are non-magical practitioners, but but also in the guise of sound for people who who are. But there are other things that people associate with Halloween: cats, vampires, scary films. Mm -hmm. How does that fit in? Cats, vampires, horror films, zombies. Uh, everything's out. Everything's fair game now at Halloween, isn't it? It's Frankenstein's monster, uh, people dressed up as gorillas, beef burgers, you name it. Someone's dressed up as a um, sexy nurse, whatever. Um, none of these really technically have anything to do with Halloween. It's just part of the sort of gothic uh, sensibilities of sort of Protestant nations since the sort of 18th century and romanticism. They're, the Cats, I would probably single out as being maybe more to do with Halloween. Um, as I said earlier, one of the um, earliest witch cases involving Halloween in the time of the persecutions in the early modern period did also involve a, a cat. Um, and the connection between cats as witches familiars and witchcraft and Halloween is obviously quite a strong one. Um, the idea of the black cat and Halloween um, some suggest that that's linked in with Edgar Allan Poe and his story, The Black Cat, which was included in almost every early book on how to celebrate Halloween. That short story was included as, you have to read this story on Halloween or it's not a proper Halloween party. Um, so that seems to have associated with Halloween. Edgar Allan Poe is hugely associated with Halloween, um, despite the fact that he never mentions Halloween once in any of his works. The closest he comes is in one of his poems which references a night of nights, which might be Halloween, but it might not be Halloween. Um, vampires again, the star of Dracula mentions the night when all evil is loose on the world, when Jonathan Harker arrives in Romania, um, Transylvania, Romania. Um, and again, you might think, oh, so this is a vampire story set on Halloween. 
but actually that he arrives around May Eve, so it's sort of it's it's a bit earlier. I think it's more connected with Walpurgis festivals and things like that. So it's not Halloween, despite it being the night when all evil roams the earth. I think the idea of vampires and horror movies and zombies is probably to do with this sort of unnatural relationship that um, Protestant cultures eventually have with death. And the more sanitised our culture becomes, the less people are familiar with the natural process of death and dying. Um, and the natural process of the body rotting and the more atheistic Western society becomes, the more the emphasis is on the material body as being the person and there's no soul. If you don't believe in a soul, then the rotting body becomes a thing of complete horror because that's where you're going, that's how you're going to end up. And so I think the emphasis on sort of rotting flesh and cadavers um, is probably due, due to an inability to cope with death as, as a concept and a cultural inability to come to terms with it as a natural part of life. Um, but things like vampires and zombies are sort of undead. You could broadly categorise them into being creatures that are otherworldly, creatures that are related to death, that do behave in unnatural ways. So the connection with Halloween is maybe if you stretch the point, uh, there is a connection. Horror movies weren't really associated with Halloween until very, very late. The, um, the, the earliest Dracula film, which I think is from 1931 or thereabouts, with Bela Lugosi was actually released near Hallow uh, near Valentine's Day to coincide with that. It wasn't until the horror movie Halloween by John Carpenter, um, that, that, that Halloween became very much associated with horror films and then it became a, 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 almost like a, an obligatory thing that horror movies are released near Halloween and people watch horror movies on Halloween. So. Okay, finally then, finally, we've, we've looked at what Halloween means to magical practitioners, what Halloween means to witches, what Halloween means to children, what mm -hmm. Halloween means to parents. What does Halloween mean to Judith? Uh, wow. Before I worked here, I'll be honest, not very much. To, uh, it was just a time when uh, children that I taught at school were particularly wound up uh, and excited, uh, and I could have done without that. Thank you very much. Um, now, I think, having researched it and, and spoken to a lot of people about it and looked into the history of it and the objects about it, I think it's just a fascinating, paradoxical time. Um, and I really think that that's the, the dynamic of it, um, I think is quite inspiring. And I, I get a bit weary with people who moan about it being too commercial. And I get a little weary with people who sort of dismiss it as American in that sort of European snobbery way that Europeans often have when a lot of great things have come out of America. And America in its best sense, is a blending together of all European cultures, which is actually a very positive thing. Um, and also, I think if things are popular, that doesn't automatically mean they're bad. Um, so I, I find it quite inspiring to see how people are inventing things and being creative and how it's being taken on by communities like the LGBT community, uh, particularly in America, it's been a real time where it used to be that, you know, that I read one person who said the only time they could go out dressed as themselves was Halloween, you know, so it's sort of become a, a focus point in places like Greenwich Village for freedom of expression. I also think that there is too much 
telling people what to do in the world, telling people what to, how to live, to be normal, to be bland, um, to be the same as everyone else. And I think I read something that Tim Burton, the filmmaker, said about his film The Nightmare Before Christmas, which really resonated with me, which is growing up in a suburban American household and you know increasingly you could just say in a suburban english sort of life you're so disconnected from the rituals of the year you're so disconnected from otherworldly ideas that to have one night of the year where something like that is permitted and permissible and encouraged and where even your most staid office worker or your most grumpy teacher participates in it in some way is actually quite a good antidote to the sort of uh, blandness of a lot of modern life and I think that's probably why it's so popular because as we get more and more scientific and clinical and we have all these sort of explanations for everything the mystery the magic and the mayhem become even more appealing um, so I think it's kind of a reaction against all of that and I think it's great and whether it's kids or whether it's magical practitioners I think it's an expression of as something innate in human beings which draws them to the dark side of life, makes them think about life and death, and makes them think about uh, the, the seasons of the year and their own culture. My thanks go to Judith for a fascinating insight into the various meanings of Halloween. You can learn more about Judith, and also about the events happening at the museum over the next 12 months, by visiting the guests page on our website at www. .thefolklorepodcast.com Every month our show is growing and more and more people are coming to enjoy the access to such eminent guests and their research which The Folklore Podcast gives you absolutely free. Remember that there are various ways that you can help us out a little to ensure that we can keep doing this for you and bringing you more from the fields of folklore. As always, there is an e-magazine to support this show. It contains a full transcript of my interview with Judith, as well as a number of images from the museum's Halloween exhibition. This can be downloaded from the supplements page on the Folklore Podcast website for just 99p, or a little over a dollar. But do bear in mind that if you become a patron of the Folklore Podcast with any monthly amount, you can get all of our e-magazines emailed to you. Even if you're a $1 a month patron you get these, meaning you get two for less than the price of one. To support us and gain other rewards, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thank you for your continuing support. Please continue to rate and review the show on iTunes to help us grow and spread the word on social media. The more we grow, the more we can bring you. To find out who next month's special guest will be, sign up for our free newsletter on the contact page on our website. In the next edition of the Folklore Podcast, I will be examining the subject of fire in folklore. Subscribe on the website to make sure you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. See you next time.